0: This message
1: was presented at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening. Again, you've heard that before, huh? So it is my privilege to introduce the speaker for tonight, Natasha Neblett, the president of GYC. I was uh, just quizzing her a little bit backstage asking her how I should introduce her, and she said, whatever you do, just don't tell them that I'm the boss, and and so don't remember that. But she did say that she loves her home, she loves her family, and she loves orphans. Now, we're often asked at GYC, some of the leadership, how do we go about finding leaders of GYC? And I'll give you just a little bit of insight into the process of the board of directors. We spend a tremendous amount of time and, thought, and more importantly, prayer about the, the leaders of GYC. We got together when we were gonna select the leader of GYC. We got up at a normal hour, most of us. We went down, we had our devotions, we did breakfast, things like that. Natasha was up at three or four in the morning that same morning on her knees while the board of directors was probably sleeping. We don't look for people that have qualities of worldly leadership. We look for people that have a deep relationship with their creator. And that's why we selected Natasha to be the president of GYC. And so she went through this prayer session, and then she came in, and we asked her, well, what's your vision for young people? And I remember very specifically, she said, you know, there are X number of children sold into sex slavery every year if Adventists don't do something about that, who do we expect to do about it? She said, that there's X number of people who are dying of hunger. If Adventists don't do something about it, who do we expect they're going to do it? And I sat there, and I was personally inspired by her story. And so tonight, I get to introduce our president, our speaker, and someone that has personally inspired me, Natasha Neblet. We have a a interesting tradition that we do at GYC. We have a Bible that goes with the president. And and this Bible has had the privilege of going to different places in in China, actually all around the world. Uh, Presidents have spoke out of this for opening night. And so tonight it's my privilege to transition that Bible over to Natasha as our president. And as I've said, she has absolutely inspired me, and I'm confident she will inspire you. And so here's the Bible, and we're thankful, and we're here to listen to you.
0: Thank you, Justin. Let me tell you, (laughs) this is an amazing, amazing moment for me, just to even take it in. Um, After a year's worth of planning, it actually takes more than a year's worth of planning for each GYC, it takes about 14 months of planning or so, 14 to 15 months of planning. So this conference has been a long time in coming. We were planning it since before Orlando took place last year, 2013. And to see all the, the, you know, the conference calls, all the emails, all the work um, that the executive committee and the volunteers that have put so much time and effort into this conference, uh, to see it actually come to reality right here and right now is a, is a truly amazing experience. But all the effort, all the work, all the labor comes to nothing if we don't have one thing, and that's the Spirit of God. So that's what we're seeking this week and this weekend here at GYC, the Spirit of the Living God to fall on all of our hearts. And I'm so excited about the theme this year um, because it is... It is the very center and the, it's the cataclysmic moment that took place in the existence of the most precious thing in the universe to me, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's have a prayer and then we will jump into our, um, our time this evening. Heavenly Father, you know that I'm small, you know I'm, a, I'm just a girl, I'm... I'm young, you know that it's far, far easier to be up on the the mountain behind our home just praying than it is to be on this stage. Lord, not a word that I say tonight can benefit anyone in this room or bring any blessing to them unless your spirit accompanies me. Please let me decrease, please increase." Please lift up your name tonight, and I pray that your spirit would fall upon me and fall upon all the hearers here, and everyone that's joining us via 3BN or the live stream, Lord, I pray that all of us would see Jesus and not a human. Open our ears to hear what you would have for us right at the beginning of GYC. We pray these things in the precious name of our King, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. All right. So, it's the beginning of GYC. How can we get the most of it? I want to just say first, um, I said this once in my prayer already, but I don't know how many of you would necessarily pick up on this just from seeing myself with my executive committee and going around and planning and whatnot, but I am a very major introvert. It is not easy for me to be up on a stage. It is not easy <laughs> for me to be in large crowds of people or even smaller crowds of people, but I have a God that just, like, enables and empowers, and I am so thankful for Him, and He gives me freedom, and He gives me peace. And besides my God, I have an absolutely amazing family. I, my parents, um, by the grace of God, I am what I am because of godly parents who have spent unnumbered hours praying for me and I don't know how many days this year my mother has fasted and prayed for me. Like every, It seems like every time I turn around, she's just calmly going around the house and mealtime comes and she doesn't sit down and I'm like, mom, are you eating? Oh, not today, honey. And then I find out later she was fasting and praying for me specifically um, She's done this over and over again, and she has fasted and prayed for, the two of, uh, for all of you as well. Um, my brothers have put in unnumbered hours, unnumbered hours, and have accompanied me to the most wild places um, to support what has happened here today. And um, last but certainly not least, one week ago today, on Christmas Eve, the most amazing man in the world proposed to me, and I said yes. <laughs> so I am very, very glad and very thankful to God that he has blessed me um, with an amazing man that knows how to care for my heart, how to protect my heart, how to lead my heart, and how to win my heart. And um, if you get a chance, say hello to Paul Dysinger, because he is the most amazing man in the world, and I am so honored that I will someday be his wife. So how do we get the most out of GYC? We're right at the beginning of it. Um, We're going to be sitting through so many plenaries, so many breakout sessions. How do we gain the most out of it right from the start? And this is what I want to be talking about tonight. I'm pathetic at naming my messages, but if I was to name this sermon, it would be called The Impossible Life. The Impossible Life. We will get the most out of GYC if we do three things. The first is if we're honest about ourselves and where we really are. The Bible says that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. First is if we're honest about ourselves. The second is if we recognize that there is something bigger about Christianity than we actually have in our hands right now. Christianity is an endless frontier. It never stops, and there's something more to be attained. No matter how long we've been in this walk, if you have never given your life to Christ, or if you have done so over and over and over again for, for years, for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, however, however old the oldest person in here is, I don't know. But if we have given ourselves over to God every day, there's still an eternity more. There's something bigger than the Christianity that we just have in our hands right now. And the third thing that we'll get the most out of GYC is if we are willing to be true to the Word of God and who it declares Jesus to be. What is real Christianity? I'm going to start out my message with two stories of people that are actually currently alive and walking on this planet. At least I think they are. They were alive uh, as of a few months ago I think you'll understand once I actually tell you the stories. I'm not confident if they are alive right now. Um, Two separate stories, but before I get into that, who can tell me where the term Christianity or Christian was coined? Antioch, that's right. Antioch in? Antioch in Syria is where the term Christian was coined. It probably was actually not a very complimentary name. Christian by you know by the very etymology of the word christ i a n the suffix christian the jesus people essentially they can, all they can do is talk about jesus they're they're christians antioch in syria was the very center of what christianity of where that in jerusalem it was just the very center of how christianity then spread and went all over the world in one generation, incredible. I have a passion because Christianity is just about snuffed out of the nation of Syria today. We have no official Adventist presence in Syria, none. Does that bother anyone besides me tonight? No official presence in Syria, the place where the term Christian was coined. It was like the cutting edge of the hotbed of Christianity, and today there's no Adventist presence there. But I'm going to tell you a story tonight that comes from Syria and what it means to be a Christian in Syria today. This is as of a couple months ago. There was a woman in Syria. She is a Christian, not an Adventist. Again, I said that there is no official presence of Adventism in Syria, the the entire nation. She's a Christian woman, and when the unrest broke out in Syria, probably all of us were aware of that if we were keeping track of the news, um, she and her husband had been praying for a revival, for Christianity to be revived in the nation of Syria. And then the unrest broke out. The killing was going rampant, and it was the most unbelievable experience to them. Their, their Muslim neighbors started coming to them and saying, Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this? They, their Muslim neighbors knew that they were Christians. One day she was on her knees shortly after the war broke out, and she said she was praying that God would make her a witness. And the only thing that she heard back from God, just in the stillness of her heart, no audible voice, but in the stillness of her heart, the question she heard back from God was, will you give me your life? Now, that question means something quite different in Syria than it means here. When we say here, you know, will you give God your life? We don't, we're not meaning the same thing as it means in Syria where Christians are dying left, right, and center in very brutal ways when God was saying, will you give me your life? She prayed about it that day, and she said, yes, I'll give you my life. The next day, she was on her knees again. She was praying that God would make her a witness to her nation, and the only thing she heard back from God was, will you give me your husband's life? She said that was harder for her, but she went to her husband. They prayed about it together, and they said, yes, Lord, you can have the husband's life as well. The third day she said she was back on her knees praying that God would make her a witness and the only thing she heard back from God was, will you give me your children's lives? So that was the hardest of all. It took her quite some time. She went to her husband. The two of them fasted and prayed together and they agreed that God himself had given them their children and it was only right for them to lay their children on the altar for the sake of the Almighty. I'm going to pick up and quote her directly. When we agreed to lay our children on the altar," this is her uh, writing, I knew I had to tell them, my children, the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords would come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam, but no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while, that we should just close our eyes, and when we open them, we'd be with Jesus. Then she says, am I a good mother to have to tell my children such things? I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe. That He is in control even during the bloodshed, during the killing. He is carrying our future. And then she ends by saying, this is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. What does it mean to be a Christian? Second story, Um, this is a gentleman in Nigeria. He was under similar circumstances where unrest had broken out in his region of the country, and he was a pastor. He was pastoring in that area, ministering to people, and as many of his… Church members it was an underground church, but as his church members were dying, he was m- seeking to minister to them, and those that were doing the persecuting realized that he was the pastor of this underground church. And so they began to target him. They tried to get after him, had, were not really successful in catching up with him to take his life. But they one day surrounded his home, and his wife was very sick. But they knew he was inside, but they for some reason didn't break in, but they besieged his house for three days. He was unable to get medical help for his wife, and she died there in the house. He said he was so so horrified, so shocked by, by being there with his wife when she died that um, he said he couldn't eat for days. Couldn't eat, couldn't drink, couldn't sleep but he said during that time his communion with God was unlike anything he had ever experienced before. After that, he continued He somehow escaped that situation. He continued ministering. A while later, the same people that were persecuting found his brother and they killed him because his brother was the pastor of the underground church. A while later, they found his sister. They captured her, raped her. A while later, she escaped, but she's living with the repercussions of that. A while later, they found his other brother, and they also killed him. A while later, several months later, they found his father, and they also killed him. All because this man would not give up his faith. Some of us in here are like, this man is crazy. You know, if he had some heart, his family's dying around him. If he had some heart, he should do something about this. But he that loveth father or mother more than me, says Christ, is not worthy of me. They were interviewing him. He's still, uh, I mean, I don't know if he's alive today, but a couple months ago he was alive. And they asked him, How are you holding up to this now? Your whole family is dead. He said, Anytime he counts not his life on earth dear unto himself. Anytime. The insurgents go into a new location and start killing Christians. He makes a beeline for that location, and he ministers to the survivor, surviving family members of Christians who have been killed. They asked him, how are you holding up under this strain? And he said, oh, my inner joy is constant. I serve Christ. My inner joy is constant. What in the world? How can it be that he has lost everything precious to him on earth, why would life be even particularly important anymore to him? This man has suffered the most severe kind of persecution that a person can experience, the loss of his entire family because he will not give up his faith in Christ. And somehow through the hardship, through the bloodshed, through the killing, his inner joy is constant. I tell you, we always say that we should pray for the persecuted church, and I think we should. There is no question we should be praying for the persecuted church. But let me tell you, the persecuted church needs to be praying for us because they have something that we don't have. I envy that man's experience. My inner joy is not constant. Now, I experience joy in Christ, okay? I'm not trying to say I don't, but I don't have what that man has, and I want it. I want it. There is something more to Christianity than what we just have in our hands today, and when the life of Christ comes down and lives, because that man's reaction, that man's response under persecution, affliction, death around him, That is not a human response. That response is the life of Christ living in that man. And I want the life of Christ living in me. I am tired of futility, of easy Christianity that just goes along and, 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 you know, lives a a good life and, and, and does some ministry just on the side. I want the life of Christ to live in me in a way that will shake the world. Listen, the world is dying right now. It is an indescribable agony. Justin mentioned that this is one of my soapboxes already, but I'm gonna say it again. There are between 143 to 210 million orphans worldwide. Between 143 to 210 million orphans worldwide. This probably does not include street children, trafficked children, forced child labor, or child soldiers. 20 to 60% of children in all countries of the world are experiencing domestic violence. There are nearly 30 million slaves in the world today. 30 million, that is more slaves than were ever enslaved when William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in Great Britain and America. More slaves on on earth today, but we say that we don't have a, a slave trade. We do. It is an unbelievable problem. Most of those are sold into the sex trade. Some of them are being sold for as little as 50 US dollars for lifelong physical and sexual servitude. What is going on in this world? To put things in comparison, the slaves back in Abraham Lincoln's day were being sold for the purchasing power in today's currency of five to $40,000 a piece. And now they're being bartered off for $50 on the streets? The world is in shambles. In shambles, every four seconds, another person dies of starvation or hunger-related disease. I mean, that's one right now, and another, and another, many of whom have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Coming a little bit closer to home… Not too far from here, there are Native Americans living on reservations that have never heard the name of Jesus either, particularly, that, that actually are living in developing world conditions with substance abuse and squalor around them. People that regularly… I, I live about an hour and a half from a reservation in, in New Mexico, and they regularly on that reservation encounter demons. It's everyday life for them. Coming a little bit closer to home, the people that were doing the pre-conference outreach here at GYC, I don't know how many of you know, but there were about 200 um, young people that came here ahead of time and went door-to-door. You'll hear more about it as we go through GYC. Went door-to-door here in Phoenix, ministering, giving out, you know canvassing books and whatnot. On several occasions, they encountered people, perfectly secular people, who have seen demons in their home. Right here in the city of Phoenix." Does the world have a problem? What is it going to take so that the life of God is born into us again in such a way that the world collides with it the way it collided with Christ? What is it going to take so that the world must finally stop and take notice of Jesus like it did when He was walking and breathing on this planet? Turn with me in your Bibles. Some of you are saying, okay, this was, maybe this was a little bit more than I bargained for. Some of you in this room have maybe never given your life to Christ at all. And you're saying, are you telling me the story of, you know, some guy whose inner joy is constant when when he's experiencing the most unbelievable, I'm not even, I'm not remotely there. That is impossible for me to reach. Before you come to that conclusion, let's go through this entire message and what the Word of God has to say to us. Open your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians 2, Galatians 2.20, what is it going to take for the life of God to be born into us in such a way that the world collides with it? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? I think my notes got like totally confused. Sorry about this. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? I think that it is, most of us, I I think, in this room would probably agree, it's kind of a fundamental of, you know, when you are around and you hear sermons being preached and everything, most of us would agree that we have to lay down our lives to receive true life. It's, It's taught in the Bible, it's taught, you know, in nature, we see it in the types and shadows of this, you know, the the ceremonial system that that God set up in the Old Testament. We see it in the life of Jesus. Lay down your life to receive true life. He has eternal life, and He was the one in the universe that was most willing to die. What does it take for us to receive that true life? Most of us would assent that we can't just do it on our own. Can we just come and think, you know, I I, I want to be crucified with Christ. I… those Christians, you know, the, the persecuted church Christians, they've got this triumph, they've got this unconquerability. Like it says that it's the triumph of the Christian faith that it enables its followers to suffer and be strong, to submit and thus to conquer, to be killed all the day long and thus to live. Like, okay, I want that. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to give half my income to, to the work of God and I'm going to I'm going to do something does that work Okay no I've <laughs> I've tried it okay I've tried I've tried I'm a very much a checklist black and white person I love I love the little bullet point concept just do this do this do this and then a good process will come out I like that idea But in the Bible when you look at the way Christ died Bible says, I'm crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is the one death you can't do yourself. If Christ had died via the firing squad, well, maybe we could conjure up a death like that. If Christ had died via drowning, well, you could drown yourself. Crucifixion is the one death you can't inflict on yourself. How would you do it? The one arm, nail that in, nail your, you couldn't nail your own feet, Then the cross is still lying down. How could you get the cross up and your one arm is still free? You can't crucify yourself. No more than we could crucify ourselves could we of ourselves be crucified with Christ. It's something that has to come from outside of ourselves, something that someone else has to do because we cannot just decide to be crucified with Christ and now, you know, now I've died. It's something that has to come from outside of ourselves. Nothing we can do will work to get us there. <clears throat> I cannot be inclined towards God. I cannot conjure repentance. I cannot conjure penitence within my own heart. I cannot exercise faith or trust on my own. I cannot whip up triumph out of an unrenewed heart. I cannot have my heart be renewed. I cannot work out any of this in myself. I cannot make it happen. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And somehow, Somehow we want to be able to, like, you know, make it happen somehow ourselves because we're like, you know, I I esteem this, I want it to happen. How can I actually make it work? But it doesn't work. That's why we need Christ, Jesus Christ, to be the Alpha and Omega, but the beginning of our faith. Because we can't even conjure the inclination towards Him out of an unrenewed heart. If we have the slightest inkling towards God, if we have the slightest desire for the Christ's life, if we want Him to come and renew His joy, His triumph, His life in our hearts, it is proof that Christ is already at work he has already planted that desire in our hearts. He has already given us the, the longing for something better because we can't come up with that longing ourselves. We can't come up with the repentance. We can't come up with the penitence. We can't come up with even the desire to turn away from the, the things of the world. We can't come up with the willingness to, to see that the world is actually, it has, leaves something to be desired, that there's something greater, if we have even the slightest inkling towards Christ, it is proof that Christ himself has already come and already started renewing our heart and already started to draw us to himself by his own life and by his own love and by his own power. Faith and Works, one of my favorite books, Ellen White says this, I ask, how can I present this matter as it is? The Lord Jesus imparts all the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination, all the pardon of sins in presenting His righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. We have a God that has done something so complete on our behalf in dying for us on the cross. We can't conjure something better than what He has already done. He has saved us. He has offered us salvation. He has done a mighty work on our behalf. And we say, well, that, that sounds a little bit too simple. It's like God gives the inclination. God works the penitence. God gives the repentance. God gives the pardon. You know, how, how, does, how is that supposed to work? That's, uh, God gives the living faith. That's also a gift from God. How is that supposed to, how's that supposed to function? Why is it, if God just does it, why is not my life like look like those Christians we were talking about at the beginning? The challenge is because we keep, we keep resisting him. When he says, give that to me, we say no. When he says, are you willing to lay your pride down and go make that right? That's his spirit working in our heart. And we're like, uh, that would be so awkward. It would be so awkward to call that person and tell them that, you know, that didn't speak the truth then. So, no, but next time, (laughs) next time, God. And right then, we resist the drawing of His Spirit. And that's why we're being held back in the work, in, in the Christian walk. That's why we're being limited and limiting the Holy One of Israel. How do we stop exempting ourselves from the process? How do we stop resisting Him when He says, go make that right, or when he says, come spend time with me and we feel like doing something different right then, when we don't feel like going and having prayer time at that moment, how do we stop resisting the process? It only comes down to one thing casting ourselves at the feet of Jesus. If we don't have the inclination, we have to go to Jesus to get the inclination. If we don't have the penitence, we have to go to him for the penitence. If we don't have the experience, the walk with God, if we don't have the knowledge, if we don't have the power, we have to go to Jesus Christ for it. If we need a surrendered heart and we're not willing to surrender, we can go to Christ and he'll give us, he'll help us. He'll bring us to the point where we're willing. It doesn't eliminate our own choice to be willing to, to say yes to him but we're trying to do it on our own. In Faith and Works, it also says, Ellen White says, there's conscientious souls that want to give their lives to God, she says, but they depend upon their own effort, their own watchfulness against temptation, their own... their own... Righteousness in some way. This performance of certain duties, she says, I'm going to go pray for such an amount of time to bring them into a right, relation, right, right relationship with God. She says, such persons toil to no purpose. There are no victories in that kind of faith. I do not want a faith that has no victories. Dependence on Jesus Christ. My favorite quote in the spirit of prophecy is actually a quote of words that Jesus said he said to Ellen White lean on me lean hard lean on me lean hard if we look at the lives of these christians and we say look i could never i could never reach i could never reach that that level i could never do that then we're we're beginning to get it right. We're beginning to understand, yeah, it is impossible. It's an impossible life. We can't do it. And that is like the beginning of when the impossible can begin. Just as much as it is impossible to have constant joy when that man has been what he has been through, it is equally impossible for us to feel repentance right where we are. It is always the gift of God. It is never something that we've worked out within ourselves. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. This is not just some martyr thing. This is vibrant life being handed to us. When the communists took over Romania at the um, There was a pastor there who was also, the church had to go underground obviously at that point and he was pastoring the church and he was ministering to people and the communists figured him out, took him to prison. He was in prison for 14 years. During that time, commenting later on it because he he survived to tell the story, he said he had been in prison for 14 years. He said he had forgotten that there was green or pink or blue, his world was gray. He had forgotten that there was such a thing as trees or mountains or rivers. He had never… He hadn't seen them. For 14 years, he had not seen a woman or a child. He was in prison, being tortured on a very consistent basis, living on one piece of bread a week just on the verge of starvation, and he was in solitary confinement, had been for quite some time, and one evening, he said, as he was sitting there in solitary confinement, after 14 years in prison, his comment later about it was, he said, I I began to feel tired. And he said that he prayed that night. He said, Lord, I've been in prison for 14 years. I don't have anyone who can speak to me, Would you speak with me tonight?" He said later that in unusual circumstances God will do unusual things. He said that was the only time in his life when actually God spoke to him that night after 14 years of being in prison, most of those years in solitary confinement with consistent torture in between. And he said he expected God to give him some kind of reassurance that he was doing, you know, give him some kind of encouragement for what he had, you know, was, had been through and whatnot. But he said that he didn't actually hear some kind of reassuring words. The words that he heard were, what is your name? He said he had always known all his life that his name was Richard. But he remembered right then that there was a, a Richard back in Great Britain in the early years of the church who had been martyred for his faith. And he didn't want to say that his name was Richard because he didn't want God to ask him, are you like that Richard? And then he thought, well, I'm a Christian. But then he remembered that in the early days of the church, Christians had been martyred in the streets of Rome, right, during the early persecution. So he didn't want to say I'm a Christian because he didn't want God to say to him, are you like those Christians? And then he thought, well, I could say I'm a pastor, But then he remembered that pastors are supposed to watch over their flocks tirelessly day and night, and he hadn't done that, and he didn't want to tell God, I'm a pastor. And so he said in that moment, what he said was, God, I have no name. Allow me to bear your name. That's it. That is the essence of Christianity. I have no name. Allow me to bear your name. I have no righteousness. Allow me to bear your righteousness. I have no penitence. Give me penitence. I have nothing, my own works, my own righteousness that I can conjure up. Give me what you have. I need it, God. I need to renounce my own life. I want what you have. I'm tired of the futility of what the world has to offer. I'm tired of a Laodicean sort of Christianity. I'm tired of children dying every children every 10 seconds, people every four seconds of starvation, I'm tired of 30 million slaves being there and and just standing back and acting like the Bill and Melinda Gates can do more for the world than Jesus Christ can. I want Your name. I have no name. That kind of Christianity is a miracle. But no matter where we are in the Christian walk, if you have never given your life to Christ or if you have given your life to Christ over and over and over again for 40 years, it is the same thing. Right now, at the beginning of GYC, it will always be a miracle. Humanity cannot be a Christian. A human cannot be a Christian because a human cannot be like Christ. But Christ can be like himself in us. Christ Can be like himself in us. At the beginning of GYC, if we want to get the most out of it, we must lean on him and lean hard. We must recognize that Christianity is not something we have to conjure up. It is the gift of God into our lives when we lay our lives down, give ourselves up which is the gift of God to be able to do that and be willing to accept His work into our own lives. I want to I wrap up this evening. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do we believe our God? Do we believe on him enough to lean on him, to lean hard? This week we're going to be learning about the cross. We're going to be learning many things in the breakouts. And if at any time you're tempted to think this is impossible, I'll never be able to reach that. At that moment, say, praise the Lord. Finally, my feet on the way to triumph. Because Christianity is not a requirement, it's a promise. Victory is not something that we have to conjure up. It's the byproduct of having a triumphant God living in our lives. It's a gift, and God is willing to give it to us. I want to close by reading of One Other Life. David Livingston, I'm going to have to read this quickly, okay, because we're running out of time. An Impossible Life, from childhood up, an impossible life, the work of God all the way through. David, David Livingston, listen up, was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He was born into a home where his father used to put him on his knee and read him stories of great missionary exploits, one particularly, Karl Gutzlaff, the Dutch missionary who doubled up as a medical missionary too. And young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, you know, Daddy, one day I'm going to be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor. I want to serve God. So David Livingston, in his young life, got on his knees one day and prayed this prayer. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. I want that. I want that. And he said, through it all the words of God came to me, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He packed his bags and went off to Africa, and when he took one glimpse of Africa in the distance from the ship deck, he penned in his journals these words, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned into my heart. He married a woman of the famous Moffat family, Mary was her name, her father had been a great missionary, but David Livingston's life was one of an explorer. He would move from place to place. His only goal was Jesus in the lives of men and women, thousands of them. Finally, his wife and his young family couldn't keep up with him anymore. Some of his children were dying of sickness, disease. He said, Mary, why don't you take them back home? I will see you shortly and I'll spend some time with you. It's too dangerous here. So she went, took them back home and he continued on his travels. And do you know when he saw her again the next time? Not five days, not five months, but five years. Five years later, when he set his eyes upon his wife, she could not recognize him. Because at one stage in his jungle travels, going to preach, he had walked into the branch of a tree that had completely blinded him in one eye and marred the other. His face had been burnt under the African sun to a crisp of leather, and his, son wasn't, his skin wasn't pigmented for it, so he had roasted his skin to the point where his body almost couldn't handle it any longer. At one time, he had been attacked by a, la- a lion it had torn his shoulder, and he just miraculously escaped. When Mary saw her husband again hobbling in, with a marred face and a physical disfigured physical countenance and only hours before Livingston arrived back in England they buried his father and Livingston when he got there wept because he had missed his father's by a few hours and he had wanted to tell him stories firsthand that his father had told him third hand Biographical sketches tell us that when David Livingston walked into every university in the British Isles, students and faculty would rise to their feet in a standing ovation. They knew they were standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Finally, Livingston went back to his wife one day and said, honey, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages is still burning in my heart, I have to go back. They agreed that he would go back, they said that Mary would stay back with the children because they could not handle it again. Several uh, A while later, Mary finally joined, um, joined Livingston again, and the day she stepped foot on African soil, that day she contracted a disease that they so dreaded she would contract, and a few days later, Livingston was burying her. An eyewitness said David Livingston knelt by the grave and was weeping his heart out, and they overheard him praying, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value in anything I possess or in anything I may do except in relation to thy kingdom and thy service. And through it all, he said, there came the words of God into my heart. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He packed his belongings and went back to his hometown of Ujiji. When he arrived there to his little home, he found that someone had played a cruel trick on him and had stolen the medication he so needed because his body was racked with unbearable pain. That was one of the few times in his life that he prayed for himself. He said, God, you promised that you would always be with me. I need that medication if I am to continue to preach the gospel. And as he prayed, he heard steps, and as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet planted in front of him, and as his countenance lifted, for the first time, he was looking into the face of a white man who did not live in Africa, who said the famous line, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He said, yes, I feel thankful I'm here to welcome you. He said, Dr. Livingston, I'm a press reporter consigned to do a story on your life, and I want you to know two things about me. The first... I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the planet. Please don't try to convert me. The second someone sent medication for you. He said, give me the medication, please. Mr. Henry M. Stanley started to travel with David Livingston, and four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth knelt down on African soil and gave his life to Christ. He said, the power of that Christ life was awesome. I had to buckle in. I could not hold out any longer. Finally, with Livingston, with his body began to shrivel with the high temperatures and the pain that used to carry him from village to village on a stretcher because he could not he could not stand or walk anymore. One day as he was preaching, he was he was feeling so badly, he said to his African brothers, Please take me home. I'm very ill. I need some sleep. They took him back, and as he got there, they were put out to put him in his bed and he said, Don't don't put me in my bed. I want to help me onto my knees. I want to pray. So they put him on his knees and he began to pray. His prayers were so profound, his sanctuary with God so unique that the African brothers thought it would be blasphemy to stay in the presence of this single union and communion with God. They stepped out of the room. Someone came running a little bit later and said, I need to see Dr. Livingston. They said, shh, quiet, please. He's praying. Shortly thereafter that, they looked in. He was still on his knees. Five minutes after that, they looked in. He was still on his knees. A while later, they looked in again. He was still on his knees, and they were like, we just need to go put him to bed. he, He needs sleep. They went over and one of them shook his shoulder and said, Buana? Buana? Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived, in the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from God's voice. He didn't wave a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't sell out his soul to some earthly pleasure. The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned itself within his heart until he could say, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate myself to you. By the way, that life was impossible. And we all may as well accept it right now. It, was impossible, it would be impossible for us to live that life and it was impossible also for David Livingston. The only way is if the power of Christ comes and dwells within us. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we have a theme at the cross. Don't take what anybody says to you at this conference for the, don't take their word for it. Go back and study the word of God and see if it is true. We want, we want the almighty Jesus. We want the right Jesus. We want the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of our own invention, because he stands ready and willing to pour his life into the heart of anyone who will lean on him and lean hard. When the life of God is unleashed in his people again, the world will take note. God does not stand back and say, only once every half a century I will, do, I will live through someone like I lived through David Livingston. No, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. We're going to sing a song as a family tonight. My appeal to you is this. We're at the very beginning of GYC. If you hear something that's impossible, say praise the Lord because it's his life, not ours. The only way we'll be able to live a life that glorifies God is if we pour ourselves down and lean on him if it's all him living in us. I just want you to bow your heads and pray through this. And right now, lean on him. Lean hard. Even if you don't have the inclination, if you don't know how, ask him to show you. And he will, Some, he will this weekend. Oh Lord most holy, you know how often I try in my own strength. You know how often, how often that amounts to futility. Oh, Jesus, let us see your preciousness. This GYC, let us see who you are. Let us see the possibilities of what it means to have Christ dwell in us, the hope of glory. Help us to be willing to renounce the pleasures of earth, the pleasures of sin, the pleasure of being self-satisfied, Help us to learn to differentiate between your call, drawing us towards repentance, versus the condemnation of the enemy. Oh, Lord, please drive the evil angels away from this place and give us your spirit. Help us to lean on you. Sweet Jesus, help us to lean hard. Please give me and give everyone here the experience that these Christians have. Your eyes are running to and fro throughout this room. Make our hearts perfect toward you, we pray. Be with us as we go into this conference. Please give us your spirit. And this night, help us to cast ourselves helpless upon you be our great saviour we love you in jesus name
1: amen this message was recorded at the gyc 2014 conference at the cross in phoenix
0: arizona gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh day adventures church seeks to inspire young people to be bible-based christ-centered
1: and soul-winning christians To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.